Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Jude, verses 17 through 25. Jude writes these words to the church. He says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together for Pastor Mike. Lord, we are here today waiting for your Spirit's power knowing that we've gathered in your name and that you are here with us in our midst. You said that where two or more would come together, you would be present. And here we are, ready to receive your Spirit's words through Pastor Mike. We're thankful that he was able to have a time of refreshing with Teresa and spend some time renewing his soul. And we ask today that As he comes, Lord, that you would fill his heart with the truth. Let his words be your words. And may our hearts and ears be ready and waiting to receive what you would speak to us. That these words might change us and make us more like you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I hope that uh, you have some ability this summer to have a little bit of break, vacation uh, of your own. We certainly enjoyed ours, and I appreciate the opportunity to even go on those kind of things. I um, want to tell you, it's pretty fun and heady times to be part of Marion Methodist if you're new among us. Um, not only have we got Bible school uh, coming up this week, but we're also leaning right into the breaking of the ground at our new property. Um, we're already building stuff out there. They're building the retention ponds and all that sort of thing. So it's a really fun time to be part of Marion Methodist, and we, and we hope that uh, you can kind of see from what is in front of you, uh, the many things that are important to us here. So I want to invite you to that. And then also, um, Pastor Keith and I, since uh, the Sunday after Easter, have been preaching this series that have led us through the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John called Christian Living in This World. And we're completing that with the book of Jude last week and this week. But next week, uh, we're going to turn our attention towards something that I, th- I, I think affects every single one of us, especially those of us that have been in the adult world a while, which is the idea of suffering. And we hope that and pray that uh, through looking at the book of Job and some of the texts in there and kind of how uh, God can liberate us and transform some of our sufferings that it might be of great use to your spiritual walk. So I hope that you'll come back and I certainly invite you to bring friends to our, um, uh, our, serv- our, service, our sermon series on suffering. Um, as to that though, this sermon begins with a little video, so can you push go please? contend. 
to strive in opposition, to contest, to dispute, to vie, to quarrel, to fight, to struggle or exert oneself to obtain or retain possession of, or to defend, to strive in debate, to engage in discussion, to dispute, to argue. C-O-N-T-E-N-D Contend I don't want to make it hard today. The idea of what we're supposed to be about is contending for the faith. So when we've talked about this sermon series, Christian Living in This World, the, the world where our feet hit the ground, where our hands and eyes and everything live, as we come to the conclusion of that series, it's all pointed us to this one simple concept, contend for the faith. All three books of John and all of Jude instruct us that the DNA of a Christian follower, the DNA of a Christian follower, and that's you and me, a Christ follower, is to contend To contend means to strive for Christ. To strive for Christ amidst all the difficulties that come to us in the world. No matter what comes past us, we strive for Christ. We contend. We contend for the faith. Jude himself said it in the scripture you looked at last week. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share. You see, what Jude wanted to do when he started writing this letter is he wanted to tell us how great and wonderful it is to be received by God. How great and wonderful it is that God was willing to carry the burdens of your life and of mine. How magnificent it is to be loved by God. He wanted <coughs> to give us words that we could cherish and love. But as he started to write, he said, I felt compared to write you and urge you to contend for the faith because he's seen that as a greater need than, than casting just little blessings on us. I, I urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all trusted to God's holy people. This is Christianity. We're, we're to contend for our faith, to strive for our faith. And we contend for our faith by remembering. And what we remember first is the movement of God in the early church. You see, the, the Christianity is a movement of faith. It's a movement of truth. This is not some made-up story. This is not a theory. That's not an ideology. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a movement that was recorded by eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses shared with us simply what they saw and what happened in front of them. And so when we remember the movement of God in the early church, we're remembering what Christ did in his life, what happened around his sacrifice, how he rose from the dead and was ascended into heaven. Remember the movement of the early church and remember the movement that was instituted by God to bring his people back to himself. You know, we we wander off from God and God comes to us to bring us back to him. So, So remember, because it's a movement, when we remember the movement of God in the early church, they were constantly multiplying. They were growing all the time. Remember, as Christians, the church and the movement of God is specifically supposed to grow. Secondly, remember the warnings of the early Christian teachers. Don't miss the warnings. You know, Jude started to write about something else, but decided he needed to warn us. First, second, and third John are filled with warnings to us. 
and they're from firsthand experience. The best warnings come from firsthand experience, right? You know, this, this vacation that I took just a week ago is not the first vacation I ever took. Years ago, we were on vacation with our, with our children. Still, they were still at the age when, you know, you had to hold their hand all the time. And I was at West Palm Beach, and I'm walking towards the Atlantic Ocean. Waves are coming in. The kids were so excited to get out into the waves. My, my brother-in-law and his little girl were with us. And we were walking up there, and this, this surfer dude, you know what I'm talking about? A surfer dude comes up. He's coming out of the water. He's got the wetsuit on. He's got the bleached out blonde hair. He's got, you know, the, the, you know, the jellyfish stings like they're all supposed to have all over them. And he's been inside sometime during his life, but not recently, okay? He was a surfer dude, okay? And he comes up to me and he goes, dude, don't take the kids in here. There's like a riptide, man. Now, we don't have riptides at Lake McBride. So I wasn't sure what that was. But when a guy says, dude, there's a riptide, he said it like it was bad. Okay. So I, I realized what a riptide was later that it would grab my little children and take them out to sea and she still liked those specific two, so we didn't go in there. We didn't go in there. We went somewhere else to swim. But see, he knew what a riptide was from firsthand experience. He'd been in it, and, and he knew how to get away from it, and so he warned us. I mean, you know, it's not often that, that a 20-year-old comes up to two dads with little kids and said, don't go in here. It's dangerous. But that's what he did because he knew, because he'd been in it. And, and if you knew enough about beaches, the appropriate flag throughout. But again, I'm from Iowa. We don't have riptides, so I was just going into the water. Now, now when the, the Christian scriptures come to us, and, and, and I don't think James or, or John or, or Jude ever said, Hey, dude, danger. No, or anything like that. But, but what he does say is danger, danger, danger. There's scoffers within the church. There's false teachers here. You, you, you must see that there's a danger here. See, Danger is always worn to us by firsthand experience. You know, when you're a, if you're a parent, you know, um, you know this. And even if you're, you're a child, you've kind of known this. You, you don't warn people because of ideology, typically. You know, little kids moving towards a stove. You, you don't step in and say, you know, um, son, I've heard. I've heard around and I've read in a book that if you touch that, this is going to be a problem for you. Uh, you could get a first or second or third degree burn. So don't. That's not what you do. Because you were a kid once, and you touched something hot, you scream at them. You say, no! You don't even care if they stop cry- start crying. If it stops them from touching whatever it is that's hot, right? You're just trying to stop them. Because you know what can happen to them if they touch that. Because it's happened to you. Warnings always come. The best warnings always come from first-hand experience. So when Jude is warning us, saying there's danger in false teaching. There's danger within the church with people teaching the wrong thing. Listen to this. In in the words of today, we would say, listen, false teaching is a real thing. And it has horrible outcomes. It has tragic outcomes for people. We say, you know, we're North Americans, and we say, well, it's First Amendment. People can say whatever they want, which is true. But that doesn't make them right. And you say, well, if we just let people talk, who does it hurt? Well, at least two people. One themselves. Because they're dragging themselves away from Christ. And secondly, whoever is there trying to influence. This is a real danger. It's a real danger in our time. You you know, we have to really hear this. This is not what I want to spend all my time teaching on. 
But the fact of the matter is, we have to contend for the faith. We have to stand opposed to persons who are teaching things that are antithetical to the gospel. Now, I don't know in your life how many times you've actually had to face-to-face stand opposed to someone. This is a very difficult thing. It's a very, you know, we can stand against concepts. I can stand opposed to concepts. I can stand opposed, you know, to the concept of everyone in the National Football League East Division except the Cowboys. I'm opposed to all of them. I am. But I'm not standing up against them, right? But, 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 but when you have to stand face to face with someone and contend for the faith, that is a much more difficult thing because what the teachers of the Bible are telling us that there are persons that are distorting and damaging the gospel and they're teaching things that are unethical and immoral and not in accord with the Christian scriptures and we're to contend, we're to strive against those things. Rarely do warnings come from people who know not what they're talking about. They typically come from people who know exactly the danger that you and I are facing. So we need to, to remember the early teachers and, and, and hear their, their warnings. Secondly, we need to contend for the faith by remaining. We remain in prayer. The Christians are a praying people. Now to remain in prayer, you've got to get there first. can't stay somewhere where you're not. You can only stay where you are. You've got to get to pray to prayer. Even sometimes, I want you to hear this, because so, more times than a few people have said, well, I want to pray, Pastor Mike. I just don't know what to say. I said, lucky for you, you don't need to know what to say. You just need to get there. L- look what it says. It says, even when you don't know what to say, remain in prayer. Look what it says in Romans 8. Paul knew that some of us would go to prayer knowing for some reason or another that we were supposed to be in prayer and that we wouldn't maybe have the words we needed to say or or wanted to say. So it says this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do do not know what we ought to pray for. Yay, this is for us. We, We don't need to know exactly what we need to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The Spirit speaks for us. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. What that means is, when even you don't know what to pray for, God knows what you need to pray for, so he'll pray it for you. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. When you don't know what to pray for, as long as you get to pray, God will pray for it. But you've got to get to prayer. And you've got to remain there because you can't, be, you can't stay where you're not already. And God will take your persistence in prayer. You're just showing up in prayer and fill you with whatever it is that you need to contend in your situation. But you got to get there. You got to get there. And uh, just a little warning to our North American Christians. Make sure when you get to prayer, you do both halves. Speak and listen. A lot of us just want to go tell God what we need and say, now God, if you're going to do your job, do what I ask you for and I'll leave. But that's not how it works. And I'd actually encourage you to do it the opposite way around, a lot. Go there first and listen for a bit. Just get to prayer and listen for a bit. See what God has to say to you. And then maybe you might have something to say. And if you don't, let him say it for you. When we, when, when, when we remain with God, we also need to remain in love with God. See, I can't overemphasize this enough, but I'll try. See, a lot of Christians appreciate God. A lot of Christians think God is a pretty cool God, and they, they have great feelings towards God. Some people even, even like God. Some Christians even like God. 
What the scripture tells us is that we have to be beyond all those things, our relationship with God, and we have to be passionately in love with God. Now, what that means is, as you all know, when you're passionately in love with anyone or anything, it means they become your sole focus. It becomes the first thing that you think of in the morning and the last thing you think about at night. You are passionately involved with reckless abandon to that. And if you're passionately in love with God, that means that he will come first. You will throw yourself completely and entirely into loving God in every single way, and you won't leave him. Your, your thoughts will be wrapped in what God would have you do in this specific situation or not. Now, it's, as Keith says a lot, it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. You, you just have to fall in love completely with God, and you say, well, I like God, I know about God. Well, you have to put yourself in position to fall in love with him, because he's already fallen in love with you. He loved you before you even knew it. He's been coming towards you your whole life. Don't miss this. Third, we need to contend for the faith through action. We have to do stuff. See, we're sternly warned against living a nominal Christian life. Now, what that means is you just simply can't be a go-with-the-flow Christian. I can be a little bit more animated in my last two services than I can be in my first ones. So I want to tell you how this goes. In the book of Revelation, some of you know this, God is speaking to seven churches. And when he comes to the church at Laodicea, he says, oh, you at Laodicea, I would rather that you be hot or cold. You see, they're not hot or cold. He says, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. Now, let me explain that because you know it. The things I spit out of my mouth are the things I despise. Some of you spit out loogies. Some of you spit out chicken gristle. Some of you spit out things that taste nasty, all those kind of things. But when you spit it out, what you're saying is, I don't want anything to do with you, right? right? Or some of you just spit for fun. Okay. Usually it's, we're we're rejecting something. What God is saying here, what the scriptures say here, if you're not hot or cold for God, he's going to spit you out. Now, I don't know where that fits in the scale of things, but in the scale of things, I don't want to happen in my life. That one's pretty hard. Hi, I do not want to get hocked out of the mouth of God because first of all, it's nasty sounding. And secondly, it means that you've been lukewarm. God does not need nominal Christians. He needs Christians that are contending for the faith with maximum effort, giving everything they have to their faith. I want to show you a picture of a woman that I know real well. Um, That's Peggy Whitson. Uh, Peggy Whitson and I were classmates at Iowa Wesleyan College. A little bit about Peggy. Um, Peggy is um, was the chief of our astronaut corps, which is a position she had to step away with to go back into space. She's been in space longer now than any other human being. She's the, taken more spacewalks than any other woman. Matter of fact, at the end of the mission she's on right now, which is a 290-day mission, she'll have been in space over 600 days in her life, which is a long, long time. Not only that, but Peggy's old, She's my age. She's held it together better than me. I know that, Caleb. You don't have to say that. But, but just imagine the physical fitness and all that because Peg has thrown her whole life into that. When we were going to college, we, we, down in the weight room at Iowa Wesleyan College, we'd, you know, we'd be talking about our future dreams and Peg would say, you know, we'd say, well, what are you going to do, Peg? And she says, well, I'm going to be an astronaut. And we're like, well, of course. Everybody born in Mount Air that goes to Iowa Wesleyan ends up there, right? That's just the normal course of events. 
Well, I mean, you know, we'd kind of chuckle at her, but she didn't care. She was giving maximum effort. She got, I don't know what's impossible, maybe a 7.0 grade average, but that's about what she had. She was a classmate in me, but she showed up about a year late, you know, to catch up with me. Um, she was only at Iowa, so I think three years. But she used to work out, and she honestly had no time for us. She was a college athlete. She had no time for fooling around in the weight room. She, she went from set to set to set to set to set. And I remember one of my buddies giving her a hard time one day and said, Peg, why are you working so hard? Now listen to what she said. She said, because I don't ever want to be average at anything. I don't ever want to be average at anything. I thought, I thought to myself, my 20-year-old self, I said, I'm going to use that in a sermon someday. <laughs> but, but, but that's who she, are. she is, and she's... Famous, you know, she's one of Iowa Wesleyan's favorite, favorite children now because she knew then what it took. It took maximum effort to become that. Absolute maximum effort in life. And the Christian life, if we're going to do it the way Christ would want us, takes maximum effort, which means first thing in the morning, I'm living for Christ. Last thing at night, I'm living for Christ. Everything in between maximum effort for Christ. Will we falter and fail? Of course, on account of we're human beings. I'm not saying she's perfect. She's not. I know her. But we give maximum effort. And when we're given maximum effort, first of all, we won't get spit out of God's mouth. But we'll be living the Christian life that we're supposed to do. And it leans us towards this place where the Christian life can bear fruit because the Christian life must bear fruit. I had a coach that used to always say this. There's three kinds of people in the world. He says, there's people who make things happen. There's people who watch things happen. And there's people who look at things and say, what happened? Christians are to make things happen. We make things happen for Christ every single moment. The faithful need to go to great lengths to be to, to, to be the Christian they're supposed to be. The, the Christian is to go to great lengths to make sure that they're not contaminated by sin. And the best strategy against immoral teaching, the best strategy <clears throat> against immoral attitudes or behaviors is not to simply denounce them. We must. We must push back against them. But the first step must be to make ourselves as perfect a Christian as we possibly can. To be as holy and perfect as we possibly can. To fortify our own personal holiness. Make it your aim, your conscious, active aim to be righteous for God, not evil or detached. Do what's right. In John chapter 13, it says this, yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce fruit. That's to say Christians produce fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, fruit begets fruit. That's why most of the fruits you love have seeds in it. Those annoying seeds in those grapes, those little tiny seeds are in there, not to annoy you, not to make your dentist rich. They're there to grow more fruit. Within your spirit as a Christian, you've had many, many things planted in you. And because of that, the fruit's growing in you, you have the seeds to plant in the lives of others. The Christian takes seriously the physical and eternal welfare of other Christians. See, 
I've said this many times before, but you need to hear it with regularity because of your generosity. I am so grateful for the way this congregation takes care of the physical needs of people within our community. You know, um, a moment ago, Jan talked. She brought her little school bag up here. Now, I've been to Haiti a couple times now, and when you're in Haiti, that's actually what kids carry their school supplies in. This isn't a thing that we do just to say, oh, we need this. They don't carry backpacks down there like our kids do here. They carry those school bags just like that. And we make thousands of them here every year. I don't know if the ones we see are the ones from our church. They're coming through the United Methodist Commission on Relief, probably other denominations too. But but we make thousands of those. This week, five days, we're going to serve lunches to kids at various areas that that are low low income in our community. We, We probably haven't been out there today, but we've probably filled both these baskets with stuff or the, the grocery carts for the food pantry. Last week, uh, we had this opportunity, which, which I think you love, but during your Christmas Eve offering, you, you give to the friendship ministry. And, and we had a family within our scope of, of uh, knowledge that had a, a real bad domestic scenario. And I'm going to shorten it by telling you this, that she had two kids, a mobile home, and because of the domestic situation, no beds. So you bought them beds. See, that's the kind of stuff Christians do. You take care of the physical welfare of people. And so you bought three beds last week uh, at the end of your Christmas Eve offering. So thank you for that. And it doesn't say just take care of the physical needs. The Christian also takes care of the eternal welfare of other Christians. That means that, that we have to, at some deep levels, protect ourselves and others from, from that which comes towards them, those difficult things that comes towards them. We have to put up a shield in front of the vulnerable. And, and you know lots of people that are vulnerable, right? I mean, people that are new moms or particularly vulnerable because they haven't slept for a long time. People that are having re- relationships unravel are particularly, you know, uh, vulnerable. People that are having difficulty financially are particularly vulnerable. People that are, are, are stressed out or having some sort of mental illness, particularly vulnerable. People that are struggling with alcohol or some other kind of addiction are particularly vulnerable. And we have to help shield them from that which is encroaching upon them. Because, of course, when you're vulnerable, that's when sometimes you reach for anything or let anything come in. And and so the Christian is to protect the spiritual needs of that person or those people or those groups by putting a shield in front of them. And we're to tell the truth and teach the truth to our young. You know, this isn't just because we bought a kit. I mean, we're not going to have 200 and some kids here this week in Bible school just so we can, you know, say we did something cool. Our goal is to teach truth to the kid. Those little kids that left a little while ago, your little children that left and are upstairs now being nurtured by some of our teachers, they're being taught the truth of God because plenty of other junk is going to come towards them. But we want them to be founded in the truth and we want them to have the ability. We want to help you and your family so when you go home, you can teach more of that truth so that you can help the eternal welfare of your families. And we want to to to, to let you know the truth exactly, which is why the, the scriptures keep telling us, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth because the truth is what helps us move forward and christians shield others and we comfort the hurting you know how many times do you have to have someone talk to you and just say a few words that comfort you before you discern that maybe that's what i'm supposed to do to others too you know just taking time to reach out to someone saying, 
Are you okay? I've got to tell you, too, we're North Americans, so you have to ask two questions. We have to be the Christian of the second question. If you come up to me and say, how you doing, Mike? You know what my answer is going to be? Fine. I'm fine. So you have to say, really? Or are you sure? Or even better yet, why are you fine? Because that one gets to your soul, because then you've got to come up with an answer. But you know when there are people in your sphere of influence, whether at work or in friends or within your family circle, you say to someone, how are you doing? Fine? (laughs) Then you want to say, blow your breath. Then why are you acting like this? But as a Christian, we really have to say, how can I help? If you're so fine, how can I help? We have to comfort those. and We have to provide counsel for the uncertain. Do you know how many people in your circle of influence and in your uh, understanding of, of people that are around you that are really uncertain about their own eternity, that are uncertain about their own spirituality, that are uncertain about whether anything that we're talking about in here has any base in reality or truth. And yet, here you are as their friends, and here I am as a person that knows them, and I'm supposed to provide counsel for that, which means I have to reach out to them. And then the Bible says this, what what Keith read a few moments ago. It says, win back those who have been deceived. Win back those who have left the building. You know, since we're adults, mostly in here, and I know the youth have this too, Every single one of us has somewhere between one and five people in our life that have known Jesus, that have sung, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And yet, at this point in their life, they've walked off. They've left not only church, they've left God. They've left Jesus completely, entirely. And the scriptures say, win back those that have been deceived. Win back those that have seen that their answers are in some other thing. Win back those that have said, this is a bunch of hokum. It's made up mumbo jumbo. It's incantations that are just filled with, 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 with imagination or mystery and all that kind of stuff. Make an effort to win them back. And it starts with this. It doesn't matter that they've walked away into addiction. It doesn't matter that they've walked into alcoholism. It doesn't matter that they've walked away just because they bittered out or soured out. It doesn't matter why they've walked away, but this is what winning someone back to the faith starts with. It starts with never, ever, 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 ever giving up on them. That's not yours to do. God will never, ever give up on any of us. God will never give up on any of the people you know. God will not give up on any of the people anywhere. So if someone has walked away from the faith, it is not within our scope of ability, and it's certainly not to be our inclination, to give up on them. So make an effort. Make an invitation. Offer some sort of assurance. If asked, or if you can find them a way to get you to ask you, share with you them your witness. Why God has given you what he's given you. Why you feel about him the way you feel. And be reminded that, that there's always a way home for everyone. Your job is not to grab them by the wrist and drag them on the path that gets them back to God, but it's to remind them that it's there and help them to that path if they're wondering at all about how to find their way home. And so last, we need to receive the promise of God. 
if we remember the story of our faith, if we remain in God and if we contend for the faith through our actions, then we need to receive the promise of Christ, who, of God, who is able. Because God is absolutely able. He's able and qualified and capable and he can keep you falling and he absolutely, certainly will. Because God is present. I've been asked so many times, Mike, where is God? Now, now maybe you haven't written anything down this whole time that you've been here, but you might want to write this down. People say, where is God? Does God exist in a specific, particular place? I said, you know, God is, God is. God exists in a specific, particular place. Now, write it down. This is where he is. Write these two words. With you. This is where God is. Always. With you. There is never a time when God is absent from you. Now, you might be absent of him. But God is never absent from you. The particular specific place that God always is, is with you. And for those that are uncertain and lost, he is with them as well. They may need to come home to him. But he has not left them ever. And last, God is all in all. To me, the most comforting statement in the world is God is. Because if God is, then I don't have to be everything. I don't have to rectify everything. I don't have to resurrect everything. I don't have to put everything back together. And I certainly didn't create everything because God is. God is. Therefore, we can be freed of everything that ruins us. We can be set free to choose to live his way and not our own. And we can spend our life contending for the faith because that is what this whole bit has been about. When we talk about Christian living for this world, what we're saying is we have to live as Christians when it's difficult to live as Christians in the world. And when is it difficult to live as Christians in the world? All the time. It's all the time been difficult to live in the Christ, as a Christian in the world. They didn't like him so much, if you remember that. This whole thing starts with the cross for us because they didn't appreciate him in his own lifetime. So it's going to be difficult to live with the Christ... So, as a Christian, so we have to contend for the faith. Maximum effort, all the time. There's never a time when we can't give, can't give ourselves completely to Christ. So we came by over these last weeks to tell you that Christian living is possible. It may not be easy, but it's definitely, definitely the best way to live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us a path on which to live our lives out. We thank you, Lord, for giving us possibilities. We thank you, Lord, that there is this great story of witnesses, that our faith is not a faith of mystery or magic or mysticism, but it's a faith of witnesses, of people simply telling the truth of what happened to them. They tell us that you were happy to carry our burdens upon the cross, and you were joyful to resurrect to eternal life and bring us there. We're thankful, Lord, that we have a faith in which we can remain, be solid and steadfast, and that we can lean into you every single moment. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us enough strength and you fill us daily that we might, through our actions, love you. And Lord, we thank you that you simply are, every single day, our companion in living. Lord, we ask that you might strengthen us today to contend for the faith. Let us not be absent-minded Christians. Let us not be nominal Christians. Let us not be calling ourselves Christians just because we own a Bible or have a sticker on our car window. But let us, Lord, live for you, 
Maximum effort. Every single moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a look at this video. joined um, UMW here 16 years ago and I just started kind of hesitantly. I was invited by somebody and I thought, um, okay, I'm ready. You know, the kids are grown and I can do this. And by learning, um, of course, the circle I belong to is a, uh, we do studies, faith studies. And just through those different faith studies, I've grown as a person and my growth with God. I think that's a great victory, knowing we have that support, that when something comes up. One of our biggest victories, of course, is our yearly bazaar. And the women come in, and yep, some of the women have done the same thing every single year. Um, There's people that manage the kitchen. There's the people that manage setting it up. Uh, They just have their own little grooves and niches, and it all comes together, but yet we work as a team. And um, it's always so successful. And uh, the success of it was like, I can mention this year, uh, after expenses, we made over $8,000. That's a big accomplishment and a big victory for us to see that money go into great places and serve not only locally, but within our church and internationally.